Welcome everybody to the first session of this uh, Three Things course. My name is Philip. I am the curator of our lovely newsletter. Thank you for subscribing. Very kind of you guys. And yeah, it's good to be with you for this second course. Um, if all of you could go on mute, I think most of you are, just to keep things a bit easier. And then feel free to interrupt me though and unmute yourself at any point to ask um, to ask questions. So Andy did a course um, a few, well, through uh, throughout this year, actually, it was six weeks and it was every, every other week looking at images in the Bible. And then um, we decided that I would do one on the Beatitudes because it's something that I've been really thinking about over the course of the past few months, really the past year. Um, I have been familiar with the Bible my entire life, and there are certain parts of the Bible that are so familiar as to become meaningless. Um, and the Beatitudes are one of those um, one of those parts of the Bible for me. And part of where I am right now in my Christian journey is returning to those parts of the Bible that are either too familiar or that are confusing to me, and looking at them and spending time with them and praying that God will show me their depths um, and what they mean. And so the Beatitudes are something that I returned to around a year ago, um, maybe even two years ago, because I wanted to know what they were all about. And I, I have to admit that um, much of the Bible, because I was so familiar with it growing up, the words of the Bible can be more like magical words than meaningful words. Like they're, they're words that I've heard so much that they kind of feel like an incantation or something like that, rather than something that actually has meaning that I can sink my teeth into. And when something feels like an incantation, you just kind of, you, you kind of ignore it. And that's what I did with the Beatitudes. And I didn't want to, um, yeah, I didn't want to do that anymore. So yeah, I decided to look at them and this little course will be kind of the fruit of, of my looking into them. And I want it for, for you guys, I want it to be a opportunity to do your own looking and to meditate on these words of Jesus and to see the depths of it for yourself in your own life. So we've called this course, The Beatitudes, an invitation to the good life. And it really is an invitation for you to listen to these words of Jesus and to be able to hear them with greater depth. And I hope that it'll enable you to do that. So what if we what if we begin? Let's start by just reading them in an English translation. Um, just like the last course, I'm going to be using step, stepbible.org that Andy used um, uh, on the last course. If you go there, you can just follow what I do, or you can um, yeah, or, or you can do it yourself, um, or just look on the screen here. And it's a, a tool that allows you to see um, what the words are in Greek or in Hebrew. And you can click and find where they are in the rest of the Bible. It'll prove very helpful to us in finding meaning um, in some of these words that we hear. So let's just listen to these words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll kind of dive into them. Um, if you're on mute, go ahead and read them with me. It's good to read them out loud. So let's start right here at the beginning, Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. So I want us to begin with this tricky word, blessed, which is repeated all these times. So millions of people have the Beatitudes memorized, but like I said, I'm convinced that they function more like magical words than meaningful words. They're like magic words that bring some kind of feeling like comfort or security or acceptance or something like that. Um, But if you press someone for what the Beatitudes mean, frequently people don't have the slightest clue. And I was one of those people. If you would have pressed me three or four years ago and said, yeah, they sound nice, but what do they mean? I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you much. They just had a nice ring to them. So I want us to start this course tonight by asking two questions about that word blessed. First, what is blessing and where is the blessing? What and where? So let's start with what. Beatitudes, uh, it's a strange English word. Um, when I was a kid, I was taught that these were the be attitudes, um, attitudes that describe what every Christian should be. So that made, it ended up with the Beatitudes being kind of like a to-do list. Be humble, learn meekness, be peaceable, suffer for your faith. And I thought there had to be more than this. Um, so I decided to look. And so let's look together. So first, um, Beatitudes comes from the Latin Beatus, and in the Latin version of the Bible used in the Christian church from the fourth century onward, it's called the Vulgate, um, the first word out of Jesus's mouth in the Sermon on the Mount is Beati, B-E-A-T-I. That is the plural of Beatus, and it means happy. So the Beatitudes are the happy statements. And they were translated this way into Latin uh, because of the original Greek. So in the original language of Matthew's gospel, the first word out of Jesus's mouth is makarios. Makarios, word in Greek. It'll be a very important word. So say it to yourself a few times right now. We need to be familiar with it. Makarios. So like beatus, makarios means happy. Um, And this word was a big deal in Jesus' day. I was trying to think of a comparison to it. And if you think of how often we hear about mental health and well-being in our time, you might get some kind of comparison. We hear about mental health, the importance of it, and well-being everywhere, workplaces, in the news, social media, secular circles, religious circles, all of these places. Mental health and well-being is something that everyone desires. And the same was true for makarios when Jesus walked the earth. It was a natural word common to everyone. 
as little needing definition as love itself, to quote one observer about this word. Everyone wanted a life of makarios, because this wasn't just any happiness. In classical Greek, makar was a common word used first to refer to the happiness of the gods. So for the ancient pagan, the gods live a life of bliss, beyond care, beyond labor, and beyond death. And this word kind of signaled that to them. But makar was also applied to human beings whose lives were kind of approaching a life of happiness that was like that of the gods. So it was the best place to be in. You were approaching godlike life when this word is, was, is applied to you. So when a philosopher or a sage or a religious teacher desired to lay before you their vision of what true happiness looked like, this is the word they would use. And these teachings, when they would offer them, were called macarisms. So the Beatitudes are macarisms. And in Jesus's day, macarisms were everywhere. So in seminary, um, they taught me to start sermons with a human interest account uh, to draw people in, because that's what tickles the ears of modern people. Um, you'll notice I didn't do it tonight. I knew you were already here for the Beatitudes, so I didn't feel the need to start with a, a story to get you interested. Maybe I should have. You can tell me at the end. But um, macarisms were what tickled the ears of ancient people, and they grabbed attention because they purported to answer the question of happiness. How do you get to this thing called happiness? What does it mean? A teacher would come, and he would start teaching macarisms, and he would tell you, what it looks like. So it's, it's here that we need to note um, that an enormous gap exists between how we modern people conceive of happiness and how the ancients saw it. So to us, a happy person is commonly someone who is feeling good about life and has everything they want, has what they want. And that means that the pursuit of happiness frequently involves following our strongest desires uh, in the hope that we will find some, you know, elusive sense of contentment. So happiness is a subjective experience for us. I feel happy. And it's very often a temporary one. I love the way that Peter Kreeft, Christian philosopher, Catholic, puts it. He says, for us, if we feel happy, we are happy. If we don't, we're not. The ancients, on the other hand, could feel happy and really be unhappy. For example, successful tyrant, just as you can feel healthy and really be unhealthy. I love that. It just gets at the difference um, between these two ideas of happiness. In fact, I'll paste this little quote um, by Peter Kreeft in the chat box here, um, which I will open up right now. So this is Peter Kreeft, a Christian philosopher. And he says, he says this, um, don't mind that that's a picture of Andy instead of me uh, coming up in the chat box. Um, he says, for us, if we feel happy, we are happy. If we don't, we're not. The ancients, on the other hand, could feel happy and really be unhappy. For example, a successful tyrant, just as you can feel healthy and really be unhealthy. So, 
a question we should ask then is, yes, is someone trying to ask a question? Feel free to butt in. Okay. How did the ancients move toward this true happiness? Um, for them, it involves kind of a three-step process. So there's a three-step process for the ancient person to finding happiness. First, you discern the goal. Discern the goal you're aiming for. And this was called the telos. The goal was called the telos. And for them, the telos was becoming a person who has lived up to his or her full potential as a human being. And that means that you display a complete, rounded, wise, and thoroughly formed character. That is the goal. And for Aristotle, perhaps the greatest of Greek ancient philosophers, this was called eudaimonia, eudaimonia. And it's literally translated soul happiness, soul happiness. That's the goal. That's where you want to be complete as a person. Then you are in a place of eudaimonia. And that word is sometimes just rendered the good life. Your goal is the good life. Step one, discern the goal. But then the second part, you have to find the steps. Find the steps that you need to arrive at the telos of the good life. And these are called virtues. Um, that's derived from the Latin word virtus, which means human or man. And Aristotle named four cardinal virtues. Cardinal just means hinge, like the hinge on a door. And for Aristotle, the four hinges which opened the door of true and lasting happiness were courage, justice, that is concerned to do the right thing by other people, prudence, cool judgment, and temperance, restraint. Courage, justice, prudence, and temperance. Those were the path, the steps to the good life, to eudaimonia, to the life that everyone wants. And in order to get there, you have to do the third thing, which is form the habits. You train yourself in these virtues until they become habits for you, second nature. And after time, these virtues become part of you. They are who you are without even thinking about them. So that was the three steps to finding happiness for the ancient person. You discern the goal, you find the, you discern the goal, which is the telos, the end, eudaimonia for Aristotle. And then you find the steps, virtues, and then you form the habits. You train yourself in those virtues until you become this happy person who is virtuous. The happy person is the virtuous person, the man or woman who has trained themselves in all that is needed to reach the telos or the goal. Now, this is not just the person who knows in their head what is good, um, but it is the person who does what is good, eventually without even thinking about it. It's just who they are. And that person from, from whom that the virtues flow is the happy person. They and only they are truly happy. That is the ancient classical conception of what it meant to be happy. Now, Aristotle used the word eudaimonia, 
to describe this person who was living the good life, good life. And there was another word that he used to describe it, a word that functioned as a synonym for everything I was just talking about for the good life. And that word was makarios, makarios. That is the word we find here in the Beatitudes. If you hover over blessed, you'll see it right down there. Makarios, a word that is extremely powerful in the ancient mind because it means the goal. It means the good life, eudaimonia, happiness, makarios. So there you are. That is what we're talking about in the Beatitudes. Um, so when Jesus stands on the mountain and he begins his public teaching ministry with seven statements that all start with makarios, he is not doing something original. He is doing what the philosophers and wisdom teachers of his day would do. And he is doing it as God incarnate. So with the Beatitudes, Jesus is declaring with authority what is the true way of being in the world that will result in real and lasting happiness right here, right now, but also in the future. He is laying before us, like any philosopher would do, his vision of the good life. And it, seeing this connection is quite remarkable. Um, he is standing before you as a philosopher in a way. It is very common for Christians to see Jesus as Lord and Savior, which he is. But how often do we see him as philosopher, the one, one who has come to tell us what it means to live a good life and what the good life looks like? That's what he's tapping into with this amazing word, makarios, that he uses a bunch of times in the Beatitudes. Now, one of my best discoveries in studying all this so far has been a little book, um, which you can see it here, maybe. It's called The Beatitudes, Thoughts for All Saints Day, by a woman who was writing under the name Mrs. Rundle Charles. Um, I discovered it in a footnote somewhere. I liked what was quoted. And so I tried to find the book. It's all online. I'll send you a link later. Um, I found a copy printed in 1889. Um, she was a Anglo-Catholic woman um, over here in the UK. And she really got this. Um, she got what Jesus was talking about um, when he used this word. And I want to read you just a little bit of what she said. Um, from this work published in 1889, because I think it really, really gets it. And I'm going to send this out tomorrow um, as a newsletter to everyone, I think, um, because it's just such a lovely piece of writing. Um, so she says, what does Jesus mean when he's using this word? Um, she says, happy as healthy children are happy in their father's house. Happy as the laughter of a child or the smile of a sudden surprise of joy in eyes wet with tears. Happy with the gaiety of hearts released from self-seeking, of minds relieved from strain, as a mother remembering no more the anguish for the joy, as a patriot when some great victory is won, some wrong of the ages undone. Blessed, with no pale shadow of joy, with no mere calm of a far-off Olympus looking down serenely on human strife, but with the creative, overflowing bliss of the heaven, which is love. 
blessed as the blessed mother, Mary herself, whom all generations shall call blessed, embracing in her babe, the savior of the world. Blessed with a heart in harmony with itself, at rest, content, satisfied, full of all the music which human, of which human hearts are capable, from the soft murmurs of content to the thunder of the many waters of ecstatic rapture, all that is involved in all the words expressive of human bliss, reaching up to the divine creative joy. So that's what you get with Makarios. <laughs> so she's she she has seen all of this meaning from um, the classical literature, and she's saying this is what the word was weighted with when Jesus was talking about it. So by now, with all that explanation, and I hope it wasn't too much, um, I hope you can see that blessed um, is not the best word to capture this, at least for modern readers. And I hope you can see that also happy is insufficient too, because of how vastly our idea of happiness is from earlier times in history. And from what I just read to you from Mrs. Charles, um, blessed feel doesn't work. Happy doesn't necessarily work. And so the word that I've come to prefer is flourishing, flourishing. Um, it's a word that's used frequently these days, and it strikes some people as inane psychobabble, <laughs> but it's actually the term most commonly used by philosophers since the 19, late 1950s to describe what the ancients were getting at. So if you read modern commentators on Aristotle, you find eudaimonia glossed as human flourishing. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at, the true vision of human flourishing. And the person who's helped me really understand this um, is a guy named Jonathan Pennington. He has a book called um, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, which is where um, kind of all of this first part is kind of summarized from. He yeah, really understands this and makes an excellent case um, for everything I've just told you. So that's the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing by Jonathan Pennington. Sorry, you can't really see it there, but it's a it's an excellent, excellent book. If you had one book on the Sermon on the Mount, um, that would probably be it, in my opinion. So let's review, um, and then we can take a take a short um, time for questions. So if our first question about the Beatitudes is, what is blessing? It turns out that blessing isn't really the best word. I'm going to keep using it for a little while for consistency. Um, the Beatitudes are macarisms, and a macarism is a pronouncement based on observation that a certain way of being in the world produces human flourishing and felicity. And that's what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes here. So do you have, let's, let's break for a minute and yeah, just tell me, is this a way of thinking about the Beatitudes that um, is, is newer to you or that is interesting? Yeah. How does this differ from how you might've heard the Beatitudes explained? Anybody have any comments or is it the same as what you've heard explained? Lori. Yeah. Hi there. Um, I, I loved everything you said. It, it goes with all the, um, it, it deepens it and gives it roots, like, you know, the, the water lilies uh, to yep. virtue. Um, but uh, I just wanted to ask, you were saying about the philosophers yeah. and 
was the, um, it's hard for me to look at the screen. That's why I always have the phone. But um, it, in did the rabbis behave as the philosophers did? Like in Israel's mind, was a rabbi like a Greek philosopher or you know, when you said Jesus was not doing anything differently, mm. I always picture Israel's um, culture different than Aristotle's and that. Yeah. Uh, in Jesus's time, in like the second temple Judaism of his day, Aristotle was being read widely, um, as were the philosophers of ancient Greece. And some of their ideas oh. were, being, were being taken up into Jewish thought at the time. And so I think that Jesus would have been familiar with those ideas. And I also think that people, um, I don't know if you know the, the, the general peasant that uh, the peasants that who Jesus was teaching would have known the depths of these ideas, but the, it, the depths are there for if you know about them. Um, so when he says Makarios, I think that would have had a resonance of like, you know, maybe the happiness of the gods <laughs> or like the, the real happiness that you want um, for anyone who was hearing. And maybe the people who were more trained would have been able to see the deeper aspects of it as well. But yeah, these were ideas that were kind of floating around um, in the ether in Jesus's time. And okay. I guess the rabbis, I don't know how much they would have been teaching them to people, but they were certainly familiar with them as like, you know, intellectuals are familiar with ideas i think okay so. like a shalom and to me in israel like what shalom at least what i get the idea is like that deep peace and sense of goodness but that's I an aspect of it different. and actually in okay, a few weeks not. we'll we'll get to shalom because um peacemakers flourishing are the peacemakers is yeah. shalom yeah. um so it's it's part of this part of this as well so yeah thank you yeah yeah, Anna. Hi, Philip. Nice to finally put a face to a name for my Yeah, newsletter. nice to see you. Um, I loved it. And I'm curious about that quote from Kraft about you could yeah. feel happy. The ancients, you you could feel happy and be an unhappy in your state, I'm assuming, yeah. right? So yeah. then it would the macarisms or makarios, would the Greeks have expected the feelings to catch up with he who is Makarios, would he feel happy or could you actually be virtuous and in a happy state of being and yet be emotionally unhappy at the same time? Yes, I think, I think you, you could. And it's a, so the, the person who had the, the Makarios person could be in a horrible situation in life about which they felt really crappy. <laughs> um, and but because they had formed certain virtues within themselves or um, were living in a certain way toward a certain telos and knew that that's the direction they were going, they could be truly happy. Um, so when you get into the Beatitudes toward the end, I mean, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but all the Beatitudes um, are kind of disappointing. <laughs> um, you get the end about suffering and all these things. So Jesus is saying that you, you might not feel like you are flourishing as you walk with me, but I am telling you that this is the good life um, in, in, in the way things are right now. This is the good life. So, yeah. 
let's um let's move on here and we'll keep going a bit. So could um if everyone could, I think almost everyone is muted here. Um, I was just hearing some feedback. Actually, no, that might be my daughter trying to go to sleep. Never mind. Um, let's let's keep going. So we ask, what is the blessing? And now I want to ask, where is the blessing? So a few moments ago, I mentioned how common it is to see the Beatitudes as a to-do list, the Beatitudes. And another common way of reading them is as a list of God's favorite people or God's preferred people. So the poor, the meek, the peacemakers, the pure in heart, the persecuted, etc. These are the sorts of people upon whom God showers his favor. The blessing kind of comes down from above. But as we've just been talking about, Jesus isn't answering the question, who are God's favorite people? His macarisms are answering the question of what it looks like to flourish as a human person. So Jesus is not giving us a picture of blessing that comes down from above the way we normally think of it. It is not blessing that comes down from above, but of human flourishing here below, human flourishing here below. And in doing this, Jesus is following the lead, not just of the philosophers and teachers of his day and throughout history, but of the Old Testament as well. And for that, I want us to go to back to Step Bible here. Um, and we're going to go to Psalm 1, place we went last time. Um, Psalm 1. So you will notice familiar word at the beginning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. In all that he does, he prospers. And we'll stop there. So, blessed, verse one, blessed is the man. So, in Hebrew, let's look. The first word of Psalm one is asher. I'll click it there. Asher, blessed. You can see right there. Um, and throughout the entire Old Testament, and especially the Psalms and Proverbs, the word asher right here describes the kind of life you want. So, just four very quick examples. Asher is the one whose sins are forgiven. Asher is the one who trusts in the Lord. Asher are those who have regard for the weak and the poor. Asher are those who find wisdom. This is the kind of life you want. In the Old Testament, the good life is the Asheristic life. It is a human life that flourishes right here in God's world on God's terms. Asher. Now, in Jesus' day, listen closely because this is an important step. In Jesus' day, the most common version of the Hebrew Bible that people knew was a Greek version called the Septuagint. And guess what Greek word was used to translate asher every single time? Makarios. Yeah. So, the asher person right here, Psalm 1, the asher person in Hebrew is the Makarios person in Greek. 
most familiar translations of the psalm in Jesus's day would have begun with the word makarios. And this is not primarily the person who receives God's blessing from above, like God blesses them um, for any reason, like their good behavior or their state of life. It is the person who has discovered true flourishing here below, right here, in God's world, on God's terms. This person does not walk in the counsel of wicked people. The person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked and who joyfully meditates on God's instructions, as we're doing tonight, hopefully with joy, um, is flourishing like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season. So Psalm 1 and the Beatitudes are essentially doing the same thing. They are not making a claim about God's favor toward a particular type of person. This isn't blessing from above coming down. They are laying out an inspirational vision for the wise way of being in the world that will result in what humans desire, true happiness, human flourishing, the good life. This is your guide to the good life in the Hebrew Bible this word. So you could look at this word this week and click here, look at the 40 times and the various other ways it comes up and you will find what the good life looks like. So in many of our Bible translations, Asher, like the one here, the word Asher is translated blessing. And there are good historical reasons for this, but I don't think those reasons really apply anymore for modern English because it makes us think of divine favor, blessing from above, and it ends up being a bit unhelpful because there is actually a completely different word in the Old Testament for when a person gets blessed by God or by someone else. And that word is Barak, B-A-R-A-K in English, Barak. So when a priest in the Old Testament turns to God's people and declares the Lord bless you and keep you, that is Barak, totally different word. That's a blessing that comes down from above. So if you're taking notes or anything, you could draw like a little stick figure of a person and draw an arrow coming down from above and write the word Barak with that. That's the blessing from above that's coming down, blessing that comes down from above. But then you could draw an arrow that's coming up from below, below the person, and that is a share. That's the type of blessing that we're talking about. So you got the arrow coming down from above, which is divine blessing, Barak, and then um, coming up from below, which is human flourishing, a share. So the, down, the arrow coming down from above is Barak, and it can come from someone in authority but most commonly it comes from God. And the opposite of this Barak blessing is a curse. So when covenant is kept, God's blessing, his favor rains down on people. And when covenant is broken, a curse ensues. And you can look, uh, you can find this all over in um, the Pentateuch, especially in Deuteronomy. So I don't want to take up too, too much time here. Um, but uh, 28. So if you look up the blessings and the curses in Deuteronomy, um, let's see. You So here, the Lord will command the blessing on you. Blessing, Barak, Barakah. The Lord will command that blessing to come upon you. 
And then there will be curses as well, which are the opposite of that, which is the word kalela. Um, so blessing and curse, lots of that in Deuteronomy. But macarisms and asher is an entirely different thing. So let's go back to Psalm 1. Uh, yeah. It's not that arrow coming down from above, but it's coming from below. So with macarisms, like the Beatitudes, Psalm 1, the opposite, listen closely, the opposite is not a curse. It is a woe. Woe to you. So macarisms are intended to draw you toward a flourishing way of life. But a woe is intended to warn you when you're going the opposite way. And Jesus offers both of them in the, in the Gospels. So in the first beatitude, Jesus says, flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then later in Matthew's Gospel, he turns to the Pharisees and he says, woe to you. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Matthew 23. So, macarisms describe a way of life that results in flourishing, but a woe describes the result of another way of being in the world that does not result in flourishing, but in total loss and in grief and in destruction. And if you notice, Psalm 1 does this too. It has its own woe right down here. The flourishing person is the well-watered tree, but not so the wicked. Um, the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Woe to them. You do not want to be like this person. Can you see how the dynamic is quite different from a blessing and a curse? Um, it's, th this is pointing you towards something or away from something. So what I want you to see um, is that the Beatitudes are essentially a Jesus-given expansion of Psalm 1. A Jesus-given expansion of Psalm 1. They are his invitation to a flourishing life right here in this world. So that is the main lens through which I, I want you to see the Beatitudes um, in the tradition of Psalm 1. And something I want us to be clear about, and that I found that I had to say over and over and over again when I preached these um, as sermons over the past few months, is that the Beatitudes cannot be reduced to a task list. So, do not look at them as a task list. Modern people love task, li task lists. We crave a way to hack the good life. And the Christian version of this is to reduce passages like these, like Psalm 1 and like the Beatitudes, to a task list. So, what do you want to do if you want to be like the person in Psalm, in Psalm 1? You just need to read the Bible, check the box, and pray, check the box, and then you'll be good. Um, the Beatitudes, they tell you to be humble. They tell you to be meek. So if you put in the right behavior, behaviors, you are going to get the promised results and you will live the good life. That's, that is a way to totally destroy your understanding of the Bible. But it is so common because people want to know what to do. But I want you to see that these past, the, the Beatitudes, Psalm 1, all the passages that you, all the insights from Asher that you'll find in the Old Testament, 
they are here not primarily to instruct you, but to invite you. Um, they are not primarily about doing. They are about being. And they are given to make us say, I want this, um, rather than I need to do this. So that they want to spark desire in you rather than obligation. <laughs> um, Jesus is going to give you a lot of things in the Sermon on the Mount that you need to do, but the Beatitudes are not that. Um, they are like a painting to be drawn into, and Jesus is giving you this vision of the good life. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to be truly, truly happy. And his Beatitudes um, are not an instruction manual to master, but they're like a painting to be drawn into. They are his invitation to the good life. So what I want us to do for the rest of our time together is to look at the first beatitude, um, and then we'll do some questions. Um, I want us to look at the first beatitude through this lens. So the first one being, flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want us to just briefly look at both halves of this. So first, you get the poor in spirit. Who are these flourishing ones, the poor in spirit? Now, throughout history, um, there have been two common answers to this question, and they are answers that do not sit comfortably side by side. So first, there is a literal answer. Jesus says flourishing are the poor in spirit. And Luke's version of the Beatitude even says flourishing are you who are poor, Luke 6.20. Jesus, this answer says, is referring to the materially poor. After all, what does Jesus say to the rich young ruler who comes calling about entering the kingdom of heaven? He says, sell everything and be poor. A self-imposed vow of poverty. That's the way to flourish. So flourishing are the materially poor. That's the literal answer that we're sometimes given when we come to this beatitude. And whenever that answer is trotted out, um, you can count on the spiritual answer being placed on the table right away in order to kind of shove off the material answer. No, 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 it insists. You can't be so literal about that. Jesus and Paul both invite people of high economic status to be part of the kingdom of heaven without any kind of vow of poverty. Jesus clearly says, flourishing are the poor in spirit. Don't you hear that? In spirit, this isn't about material wealth. Blessed are the spiritually poor, the ones who know they are sinners and who need Jesus. That's the spiritual answer that you often get. Now, these two answers frequently vie for dominance. The literal answer says that the spiritual answer upholds the status quo and that it leaves human greed untouched. And then the spiritual answer swoops in and it says the literal answer is soft on sin and makes salvation a matter of economic redistribution. It's exhausting because in a way they're both right. Um, holding on either of these views in isolation, the literal view or the, the um, material view, no, sorry, the material or the spiritual view is not a good idea. We need to hold on to both of those answers while not letting a single one dominate. And to help us with this, we need to, I want us to look at the Hebrew word for poor. And in order to do that, let's go to Isaiah 
or Isaiah, as they say here in England, um, which I've had to adopt. Um, let's see, Isaiah 61, where the prophet, um, speaking as the coming Messiah, um, says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, in Hebrew, the word poor right here is anav or anavim, plural. And sadly, it's not here, although you do get it a little in the fourth definition, humble, lowly, not meek. That means something else, which you will learn next week. Um, but lowly is very important there. So, in Hebrew, the word poor literally means to be bowed down, to be bowed down. So our English word makes us think of circumstances, but in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin, it is a word about posture. So it's not about poverty, but about posture. The anavim are those who are bowed down. By what? By anything that can change a person's posture, <laughs> anything that can just bow you down under some kind of weight and make you feel bent. Um, and so being bowed down by life, anything in life, that can be literal things that are making you feel that way. It can be spiritual things, all of this stuff. What we need to see is that the poverty that Jesus is talking about and the, the, this word for poor is about posture. It is less about specific circumstances than it is about our posture in every circumstance. Um, our posture before God. Are we lifted up with confidence in ourselves or in our circumstances? Or are we bowed down in humility and dependence before the face of God? Being poor in spirit is about posture. So when it comes to identifying who the poor in spirit are, we can't entirely let go of that literal answer that the poor in spirit are the materially poor. Because after all, the materially poor in this world frequently have a higher likelihood of being poor in spirit because they have to depend upon other people and upon God. Poverty can bow a person down and humble them like nothing else in this world but it doesn't always work this way. Anyone who has worked among the poor will tell you that there is often um, a unique self-confidence at work in some of these communities sometime. Confidence that being poor means being an innocent victim of circumstance and that everything is someone else's fault. So you might have material poverty, but this wealth of spirit and of pride, material poverty, but wealth of spirit. But on the other hand, uh, we can't let go of the spiritual answer either and let the rich off the hook. <laughs> um, because the rich, and in many ways, all of us sitting in front of a computer on a Sunday night um, are, are rich by world standards. Um, the rich are more likely to be rich in goods and in spirit because our wealth enables us to be self-sufficient. So if a rich person starts feeling low, bowed down, they can always attempt to lift themselves up with another nice meal, um, a new smartphone, another car, another house, just add to the things. Material wealth and wealth of spirit often live right next to each other. 
But Jesus declares, flourishing are the poor in spirit. And the way I've come to understand it is is like this. Flourishing are those who are in touch with humbling circumstances and who have humbled themselves before Jesus because of them. Flourishing are those who are in touch with humbling circumstances, bowed down, and who have humbled themselves before Jesus because of them. Now, life is full of humbling circumstances that bow us low. And one of the most essential things to recognize is that one of the most humbling of all those circumstances is simply being a human being. We are born naked and dependent. We will die, most of us, dependent, stripped of everything that we have accumulated over the years. And there at the beginning and there at the end, it's as if God is trying to tell us something about the whole stretch of our life. Uh, But many of us, especially in the modern West, are conditioned not to realize it. But the truth is, in the words of Frederick Buechner, he says that um, beneath our clothes, our reputation, our pretensions, beneath our religion or lack of it, we are all vulnerable to the storm without and to the storm within. And if ever we are to find true shelter, it is with the recognition of our tragic nakedness and need for true shelter that we have to start. Flourishing are those who know this about themselves who are in touch with humbling circumstances and who humble themselves before Jesus because of them. And in this, if you read Matthew 4, just before the Sermon on the Mount, you see people in these circumstances flocking to Jesus. They have come to him for healing and he touches them. And it's almost as if he's, he's looking at these people as he begins to teach these people who he's recently healed, who have come to follow him. And he's saying, flourishing are you. Don't don't forget the state that you were in that I just healed you from. Flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. But as you were saying, Anna, um, it doesn't feel like flourishing. That's the thing. Being poor in spirit so often doesn't feel like flourishing. And we ask, how is this the good life? How is a life defined by this, a life of true human flourishing? And the same with the other Beatitudes. These strange claims about flourishing that Jesus makes in the first half of each Beatitude need some kind of explanation, or else they make no sense. And that's where the second half of each Beatitude comes in. Um, And it's here that we need to pay close attention to the connection between the first half of each Beatitude and the second half. Now, in our English translations, the two halves are connected by what three-letter word? You get the word for. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is a translation of the Greek word hoti, which is this flexible little connecting word that could just as easily be translated because. And I find that much more helpful. If we switch out for, for because, the connection between the two halves of each beatitude becomes clearer. And it enables us to see that the second half of each beatitude explains why the first part is true and not meaningless. 
So flourishing are the poor in spirit. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In what kind of world does poverty of spirit count as flourishing? It is a world where the promised kingdom of God has been and will be given to the poor in spirit by Jesus himself. And this is where Jesus's Beatitudes, his macroisms, find their connection to the rest of the story the Bible is telling, the whole story of the Bible, human beings meant to flourish in the Garden of Eden, deceived by a serpent, cast out of the garden, away from the flourishing they were intended for, plunged into shame, regret, fear, loss, and death, all of these things, cast out of the garden. And we wonder, where is the flourishing for which the world was made? And the rest of the story of the Bible is the story of God bringing his blessing from above down into the world, his calling of Abraham, I will bless you and through you all nations, all peoples of the world will be blessed. And then enabling them to live a life of true flourishing through his instruction. So both of those arrows coming back into the world, that is the biblical story, the blessing of God from above and the flourishing from below coming back into the world. Israel had trouble with this. They rebelled against God constantly. And then you get prophets like Isaiah who speak that it is going to come back. This flourishing is going to come into the world again. All will be made right. And that's where we return to Isaiah 61. This is a passage that I truly believe Jesus must have had in mind when he preached the Beatitudes. Listen, um, and you will hear echoes of it. Um, well, yeah, listen for echoes of it as I read it. I won't read all of it just a little because our time's um, coming to an end. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, ding, ding, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I'll go down to 10 here. This is the voice of Israel's coming king speaking. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. You hear that rich picture of flourishing, of the goodness of God's life coming into the world. And in his ministry, it's as if Jesus is saying the time has come. All of this is happening. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And with the Beatitudes, Jesus is announcing that the good life that sages and philosophers have searched for down through the ages, the wholeness that 
our fractured human hearts cry out for is found in his kingdom. This is where to find it. And what Jesus is saying um, has been summarized really nicely um, by N.T. Wright, um, New Testament theologian. I'm going to paste it in for you so you can have it yourself too. Um, This is what he says. Um, It's a great summary. What Jesus is saying with the Beatitudes is, now that I'm here, God's new world is coming to birth. And once you realize that, you'll see that these are the habits of heart which anticipate that new world here and now. These qualities, purity of heart, mercy, and so on, are not, so to speak, things you have to do to earn a reward or a payment, nor are they merely the rules of conduct laid down for new converts to follow, rules that some today might perceive as somewhat arbitrary. They are, in themselves, the signs of life, the language of life, the life of new creation, the life of new covenant, the life which Jesus came to bring. That's the Beatitudes. (laughs) And with the Beatitudes, Jesus is inviting us to root our deepest happiness, our foundational sense of flourishing in his kingdom, not in our ever-changing emotional states, not in anything that is passing away or that can be taken from us, but in this that we read in Isaiah, his unshakable kingdom um, that arrived in his first coming and that will fully arrive again one day. So flourishing are the poor in spirit right now, those who are in touch with humbling circumstances, who humble themselves before the king because of it. They are flourishing because he will give them everything. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. So that's the first beatitude. It is the doorway um, to all of the beatitudes. Um, And I think I'll I'll close our session a bit later um, with a kind of with a quote about this beatitude um, that can kind of send us off into the week to meditate on it. But yeah, that's all I have for you tonight. And we can talk about it a bit. Um, What do you think of this? How does poverty of spirit strike you? And um, yeah, what are you thinking? Yeah. Hi, Catherine. Um, So I know that you said that looking at this like a task list is not a good way to look at at it, but talking about, you know, the bowed down in spirit, I'm immediately like, okay, so how do I become that? Mm. Is that an unhealthy way of looking at it? Or is this something that will just happen? Or I don't know. Do you have thoughts about that? Well, the, the way I've yeah. So yeah, the task list mentality is strong. Um, and I've wanted to see each beatitude as something that calls. So the conclusion of what do I need to do about this um, is more about a posture that I take rather than a thing that I do. So rather than be poor in spirit, um, 
it's what posture might I adopt um, to draw me more toward what this is showing me. And yeah, you can think, I I would think about it through that lens. So poverty of spirit being bowed down. um, What I think of first is a posture of dependence. Um, And I think I said that in, in, in um, what I was saying earlier, you realize um, that you are not sufficient to care for your own needs, (laughs) Um, that you came into this world a helpless baby, like the one Grace is holding there, Um, and you needed um, someone to care for you, and you needed someone to provide for you. And um, instead of rebelling from that reality, um, you own it. And you say, okay, by nature, I am a dependent person. And so I am going to depend on other people. (laughs) I'm going to live into the um, poverty of spirit that Jesus points me to. Um, And that is a very countercultural thing right now. um, Because we're taught so much to be independent, to be confident in ourselves, in our abilities, in our um, what we think in, in who we are. Um, and dependence is kind of seen as a, um, a dangerous thing in a way. Um, but I think one posture that we might be called to, um, to move toward poverty of spirit is a posture of dependence, but I'd love to know, uh, yeah, through that lens, what does, what does anyone else think about if you were to think of a, of a posture that um, poor in spirit might draw us to? What do you think? Well, it made me think, um, connects to another thought I was having uh, um, about um, at my church, we, every week we do the liturgy of John Christostom, which we sing the Beatitudes, but Mm. The introduction to it is we sing um, uh, I forget the exact wording, but remember us, O Lord, when thou comest in thy kingdom, you know, the phrase that the thief says on the cross. Mm -hmm. And then we sing the Beatitudes. And as you were talking, it was like clicking with me of like the picture of if I were to imagine like someone who exemplifies the Beatitudes, it would not be the thief on the cross. Mm. But that is like the introduction to the beatitudes of that like complete and utter need yeah um nothing to offer just remember me O lord when you come in your kingdom yeah um and his he had nothing um but he came with his nothing you know yeah and offered it to the lord so yeah i guess the posture of the thief on the cross is what comes to my mind and yes to to see the thief on the cross not just as you know a last minute salvation or something like that but to see him as the flourishing person (laughs) who recognizes what is real and who um yeah receives it (laughs) that's beautiful yeah lori I think you're muted, Lori. Okay, can you hear me? I can. 
Okay. Um, that was really beautiful because uh, two, two big things was we, if you think of uh, leprosy or blindness or any of the people that were healed, I, I mean, I feel my whole life, everything is mm. a weakness or uh, I feel like a bag lady on the side with mm. everybody in Cadillacs, like, you know, and we are, we can look at those as uh, a, a bad thing, but I think what you're saying is the posture is to look at it as I'm so needy that I I have to look at God. Like I mm. I, I can't breathe without looking at God because I I I don't have the good brain or I don't have whatever it takes to mm. to go the way everybody else does. So yeah, the thief is the perfect. You know. There's nothing else that he has. And so he's forced to, you know, looking at Jesus. That's beautiful. Yes. But uh, this was so rich. Oh, my goodness. But let me just, when you first started, I I, I just have reread uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And you know how Lewis mm. is about use and read yeah. the cheat, you know, use, use, you know. And I think the whole point of true virtue at least to me. And I feel like I've wanted it ever since I was a little girl. I could, I, I love goodness. I pretty much mm -hmm. just read children's stories that make me love it more, but you can't love it for what use it does. No, you, you know what I'm saying? If you do, then you just, you know, if it's a to-do list or if it's a, I got to become holy in this way, you actually lose the whole point of goodness it's almost like you have to love goodness because it's just good. And yes. it, it, anyway, thank you. That was so beautiful. Oh, I can't believe it. Thank you. <laughs> and I, I, th I think Christians, especially of the uh, like modern evangelical type are cursed, not by God, but by something um, with having to see the Bible as useful. Um, yeah. How, exactly. how can this, help me with my life. And it's true that it, it, it can. And it, it, that's what all the, all of this is about pointing you toward a life that is, that is good, but you're not going to get there by a tick box list. Um, and if you are just, you'll never encounter the richness of the scriptures. If you're trying to extract principles that you can enact from them, um, yeah. it just doesn't, it's, it, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, you were, you were, a thought about posture. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, Emily, go ahead. Posture, posture away. Well, I was thinking about um, being bowed down and where our gaze goes is towards the earth. And yeah. I've been reading a really interesting book called Braiding Sweetgrass, which is written by a Native American woman. It's kind of a blend. She's also a PhD in botany. So it's like huh. indigenous wisdom meets scientific exploration yeah. meets poetry. Um, and the chapter I was reading last night was talking about the Thanksgiving address. So mm. in native schools, the children begin the day, not with like the pledge of allegiance or anything like that, but it's called the Thanksgiving address. And it's essentially a, a poem of gratitude for other people uh, for all the different elements of the earth and the things that the creator has gifted to us that we just wake up into every day mm. without having done anything. 
Um, and so when I was thinking about postures, I was thinking about that, just a, the gratitude that is born of the downward gaze yeah. and uplifted hands, but just how, mm. how gratitude and the practice of gratitude, um, not as something to do, but as yeah. like a, an awareness that we cultivate yeah. um, could be connected to this too, possibly. I, yeah. And that's, you, you do hear a lot about gratitude now and it's sometimes communicated in a way that makes it seem like a thing to do. Right. Um, and like, I, I need to be more grateful or something like that, rather than recognizing like the deep nature of reality that calls forth gratitude. Exactly. Um, and I wonder if it feels like um, a task to accomplish gratitude because we don't have the language or the um, awareness anymore of what calls forth that gratitude. Um, we just think we need to find good things and, and be grateful for them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that is very fascinating and beautiful that they would, that they would respond in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought anybody, anybody else have any thoughts about postures or anything like that? Or other questions about so I, have a, what was I have a thought. It's not about postures. It's about okay. the kingdom of God. Do it. So this was a, the idea of kingdom work or serving the kingdom of God came up in one of a conversation I was having this week. And I had this moment of like something, something twinged inside me about the way the kingdom of God was being discussed. Uh, mm. I've, recently gone from Labrie in England, which is a, a certain definition of what the kingdom of God is. And it's a very kind of wide and integrated definition to Tennessee. So I'm, I'm wrapping my head around what Christianity is like in the American South. So this is kind of a, it's a culture shocky question, um, but it's, it's what I'm thinking right now. And, and this conversation came up in my mind, as you were talking about blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Um, what is the kingdom of God? So this, the, uh, my, my friend who, he made this comment about doing kingdom work or working to serve the kingdom of God. And there was, um, in, in the context of the conversation, it was kind of pro- proclaiming the gospel. I'm, I'm proclaiming the gospel. People need to hear about Jesus. And that is kingdom work where it's bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And I've, I've, we've been traveling around various churches in Nashville uh, for the past couple of months and just getting to know them and what Christianity is like here. And that often uh, this, these kind of ideas come up a lot as well in several of the churches. It seems like if you want to serve the kingdom of God, ser- be active in this church. And active in this church is like join the hospitality team and uh, join a Bible study. So having that, having had that experience and having all these thoughts bouncing around in my head right now, and then listening to what you said, I just can't help but wonder if cultivating a, like why, if cultivating a spirit of poverty or poverty Mm -hmm. of spirit brings you the kingdom of God, why isn't that on anyone's list? Why isn't that? Uh, why isn't that being preached about in churches instead of joining the hospitality team or proclaiming 
the gospel verbally to a group of people who are already Christians? Why, mm -hmm. why is that kingdom work? You know, um, it's so funny, a bit of a I... rant there, but I'm also just submitting this, this rant to you for, for comment. Well, when I, when I preached this a few weeks ago, um, my point of application um, was stop apologizing for being needy. Um, and it, it is like deeply spiritual and a king, kingdom impulse to ask for things when you need them and to admit the things that you can't do. Um, and also to, to never, ever say, I'm sorry for being a burden <laughs> or something like that. Because poverty in spirit is poverty of spirit is good. <laughs> um, what I mean, it's definitely not sexy though, and I can see why you wouldn't want to. It it doesn't really get people going in a sermon to say like, yeah, admit your needs to one another and um, say what you can't do and all that. It 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 doesn't move people, I guess, in the way that churches sometimes want people to be moved. I guess. Um, it doesn't sell. Maybe that's a point. Like it doesn't sell and people want to sell things. I think the idea that our task as believers is to build the kingdom of God just mm -hmm. gets so easily co-opted by this desire for bigness and greatness and inspiration and yeah. a movement, um, and maybe that's maybe if that's your goal, then there's just no room for turning the whole thing over and reconsidering that. Oh, maybe in my life, if I'm going to be the most successful at building the kingdom of God with my time and my days, uh, becoming poor in spirit, uh, it, it just doesn't seem like a not not only a, a very direct course to building the kingdom of God, but maybe in the a course in the wrong direction. If bigness. <laughs> is your goal. Yeah. No. Yeah. But it just seems like Jesus, I don't know. I'm, I, I need to think about, and I need to think about this more. There's so much in America, which worships success that just re reads its own, reads our own cultural values into the things Jesus is saying. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't know what to do um, with so much of the teaching of Jesus, I don't think, and find, <laughs> finds ways to evade it. Um, yeah. Anyone else with comments about that or observations? Well, one thing that comes to mind for me and just is just because of my where I am in life and uh, my spiritual journey, I guess. But um, so my family joined the Orthodox Church not too long ago. And um, the whole spiritual life, Orthodox spirituality is so much taken up with humility and the lives of the saints that we read about all the time throughout the ages, you know, saints that we all look up to, whatever denomination we're in um are so full of smallness and humility and i one thing i've wondered that connects with what andy was saying i think is 
um, the loss of the ascetic life of a Christian in uh, Western Christianity, even in, you know, Catholicism too, mm. um, just things that were considered just typical. This is part of the Christian life is these, you know, ascetic practices of fasting yeah. and doing alms and prayers and, and these, these ways of living that truly do force you into a posture of humility or humiliate you yeah. <laughs> um, and how life-giving that has been for me and my family. And so I just wonder about like the connection between losing those aspects of Christianity and just the way of life as a Christian in evangelicalism. It's just something I've been thinking about myself and I wonder if it's connected in any way to this conversation of the, you know, kingdom work, kingdom work. And it's like, I got, I got enough to do just trying to like work Care for that baby salvation. I can't like, what am I building? You know, like I can't even stop yelling at my kids. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> anyway, just thought I would throw that out there. I th- Yeah. The, even the um, like aesthetic practices and self denial practices of self-denial get co-opted by the taskless mentality. Like you're, you're building your own, you're building your spiritual life or something like that when really these are, these are things to just get you in touch with what is real. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Lori raised Lori. Yes. There's one last thing. I had um, six children. I had a really hard uh, time with a husband and everything that you're saying, like what Philip was saying, this needy posture of being poor not beautiful, not rich, your kids running around feeling uncontrolled, your car making noise or not even having, you know, all those are things that are despised by the world. So in a way, when Philip was saying, you know, why do we want to do hospitality? Well, that's a whole lot easier than me trying to be this beautiful drawing tree that is loving that Jesus is providing for me in a world that despises my position. I just remember going sweaty and smelly with a stroller and a baby and this, and it probably a dirty day going into the bank when the lady is like all makeup and, and it was like gross. Like, you know, you just feel like a pig, but yet you're saying like to turn and, and yet I was being everything God wanted me to be, you know, I it like, so to me, I think, I feel like it's very uh, counter. What is the word? It's counter everything that the world holds up, you know, like the thief on the cross or the lepers. It was always the, I, I don't know. I think that's why it's hard. It's hard to be humble in a world that despises humble circumstances. I, I won't yeah. talk anymore. Thank you. <laughs> I love this team. Okay. Yeah. In uh, the book I was, I, I wanted to show you guys, I'll show you a few books in a minute, but there's, there's one um, by a, he's a Catholic theologian. Um, His name's Serve Pinkers. It has a little budding shoot on the front of this book. Um, He has a little book on the Beatitudes called the pursuit of happiness, God's way that is really, really beautiful. And in his chapter in the poor in spirit, um, he talks about the choice between rebellion and acceptance. Um, 
above your poverty. And he talks about the many forms of poverty. Um, and he just lists a few. Um, illness. Um, poverty in regard to affection. The problem of loneliness. The poverty of age, which makes itself felt when our strength fails and our capabilities diminish. Um, poverty in regard to the future. <laughs> this this is the experience of people who have met with failure in their careers, in family life, or in projects or ambitions. Finally, the most hidden and difficult form of poverty to accept is the poverty of error and sin. <laughs> to um, just accept in a way that you are a person who makes mistakes, um, which aren't sinful, but you also sin, which is. Um, and to not rebel against those realities, but to go to God with them and not go to God with them so that he can fix you, um, but so that you can receive life from him. <laughs> um, it, it is, is the call. Um, so I guess, I, yeah, we have five minutes left. I just wanted to read you a bit of what he says about rebellion and acceptance, and then we'll, we'll call it a night. Um, let's see. Um, all of the various forms of poverty, he says, interconnect and lead us into that fundamental emptiness, which lies at the depths of our being, the consciousness of our condition as creatures. We did not make ourselves. All that we have and are comes from another and will be taken away from us someday, whether we wish it or not. We cannot stop the flow of time even for one instant. We can hold on to nothing as our own. This is the primordial poverty, the central void. All other forms of poverty are but its extensions. It is, the, it is in this deepest part of our being that the first beatitude touches us and challenges us with a wholly personal question. Can we truly accept to be poor, to acknowledge our basic poverty in all honesty? Do we dare to believe that this very poverty can open up to us, contrary to all our expectations, a road to happiness and the kingdom of heaven? The choice is difficult, for poverty runs counter to the instinctive possessiveness which is so deeply rooted in us. Urged on by a kind of fear of emptiness and by the anxiety which springs from our neediness, we try to acquire all sorts of goods and accumulate things endlessly. We even attempt to possess people so that we can use them for our own personal designs or simply for the pleasure of power. We are grudging about our time, our efforts, even our smiles. Above all, we want to possess ourselves, to be our own masters and to do as we wish. This is self-love, pride, speaking. Poverty places us at a crossroads. We can rebel and choose refusal and self-reliance, and this will harden us. Or we, or we can accept the suffering and let ourselves be shaped by poverty as we open ourselves to God and other people. The decision is crucial. So that's, I guess, how I'd challenge you this week and myself open yourself in your poverty to God and to other people. Yeah. 
but not a thing to do. <laughs> right. Next week, um, we will take a look at the um, second and third Beatitudes, um, those who mourn and the meek, um, the meek being one that was a real discovery for me as I studied these. It does, does not mean what I thought it meant. Um, not next week, but two weeks from today. Good to see you all. Thanks Thank for you, coming. Philip. Thanks so much, Philip. Yeah. Have a good week. Thank you.